You're listening to Work Tape, episode 35. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Work Tape podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Grover, and it is Christina, per usual. Christina, how are things on your end? They are good. They are good. Things are fine over here, staying um, nice and busy. And we're getting a little rain today in Arizona, so that's nice. It rescued us from the mid-90s. It was up in the mid-90s, and now it's in the 60s. So even though I don't like the up and down, I I will take this over already being hot. I mean, Arizona and California are probably the hottest states in the country, so... Yeah, well, hottest, depending, at least Arizona, well, Arizona sometimes gets humidity. San Diego will get more, but at least it'll be cooler. But yeah, then you have other states where it's like they get pretty dang close to as hot plus 100% humidity. And I think that's even worse. (laughs) It's pretty bad. But, you know, we have literally, I mean, even Arizona has snow. So yeah, not by me, but yeah. We kind of have a lot here. The Southwest is is horribly underrepresented. No one understands the Southwest at all. We get crazy snow. We get crazy heat. We really do have it all out here. Yeah. And if you live where I live, we get high taxes. But you know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, you're not lying. The land of extremes. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We are the most conflicted state in the U.S. And you know what? It's a, it's That's, a t- that is not a lie. That nope. is not a lie. Like up north in California, <laughs> it's a completely different world. Yeah. Tree frogs and uh, redwoods. Yeah. yeah. And mushrooms. Tons of mushrooms everywhere. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure because <laughs> of how like wet it is up there. What was it? Uh, biospheres. Many different biospheres there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, California is wild. It's a really, really incredible state. And it's unfortunate that it's like, well, and this this isn't just California. I feel like every state is run as if it's all the same, but it's not. You nope. can't run a state like that when you have all different kinds of things going on. And California is just a really good example of that. Yeah, again, as was stated before, it we we just don't agree with each other. It's the state for that. Yeah. Now, what we can agree on is bomb music because yes. you know, we have LA, we have San Diego, we have San Francisco, even though their music community is not necessarily what it used to be. Sure. And I won't lie, I, I don't think that I not sure if the LA life is for me. I was there, did it, I could do it again. But for what it's worth, LA, the music scene. It's still somewhat relevant. I know Nashville is probably a little bit more relevant. Sure. Yeah. But LA and New York, I feel, are these, and even Seattle, they're like these perpetual music scenes. Hmm. I think that makes sense. I think that because they have been that, they're always going to attract that. Like, that's just what people are going to go there for. It makes sense. Capitol Records is in LA still, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, that's awesome. I think EMI has a division there. But I, again, like Atlantic, like everything's there. Sure. 
and Billie Eilish is there. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> yeah, no, it had to work for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I did kind of check out Happier Than Ever last year a little bit, but this year I gave it more of a thorough listen. And it's definitely a step up from where do we go when we fall asleep? I gave it a little bit of a listen. I kind of gave it a speed listen. Um, it fall definitely or happier than ever. Oh no, happier than ever. Sorry. Okay. It was definitely different than what I expected typically from Billie Eilish. The one that was still like had her flavor was Goldwing with those harmonies in the beginning. They were intense harmonies. They were really good. And the chord changes were good. I was hearing um, a lot of, or no, a little bit of Lana Del Rey in there, a whole lot of old school jazz vibes, some different 90s hip hop vocal vibes a little bit in some of them. Like there was a lot going on in that album. She did a little mini uh, throughout the record. She did like this mini run a really small run, a more like an R&B-esque type run. That's what it is, R&B. That's, yeah. yeah. I knew it wasn't jazz necessarily, but it was more on the R&B side. So it's almost like R&B is essentially like jazz popified even more. Right. Well, getting older, she had a little bit of old school jazz vocal vibes, like with that vibrato. She had that... um Who's the other Billy? <laughs> the jazz Billy. Oh, oh, Bill Holiday. Billy Holiday. She had a little bit of that vibe going on just vocally with the vibrato and stuff. Ella Fitzgerald, tiny bit. It was just very, very small, but there was a lot of R&B for sure. For sure. What was interesting, and I heard both on her album and on the album I listened to by Meg Myers a tiny bit of Kimbra going on. And it is possible they listened to Kimbra because she's more indie. She's more experimental. Yeah, definitely experimental. Oh, actually not Meg Myers. Bella Porch, I heard a little bit of Kimbra in the music, not in her vocals. Bella Porch was far too poppy for me vocally, not my thing. But musically, it was... Still not my thing, but interesting. I knew you were going to say interesting because there's really no other word to describe it. There is no other word. You're right. And it, yeah, it reminded me of some of Kimber's music because Kimber's music was so out there. Yeah, Kimber is really out there. Yeah, she's awesome. The Meg Myers types are very out there. In fact, Billy, Billy is kind of out there, but she's not as out there as Melanie Martinez or even Meg Myers, even though those are two completely different artists. Sure. Not too completely different, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah, Meg Myers was really out there. I listened to her album, the Sorry album, and I had to take notes. There was so much going on. I was like, what's even happening? Like on Motel, I was hearing some 90s alternative influences. I'm like, wow, she sounds like a 90s a Meg, 90s Meg Myers singer. is essentially Nine Inch Nails, but... You know, yes. to the masses. I mean, even more to the masses than prior. Yeah. Some of the core choices reminded me of Red, if you remember Red. And they're like a rock band. I definitely remember Red. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the song Sorry sounded like Stranger by Thousand Foot Crutch. 
And then the next song on the album was completely different. And I was getting 80s synth vibes. And it reminded me of Marina and the Diamonds, who I think Marina came after Meg Myers. So maybe she was influenced by her. But there was a lot going on. I heard a little bit of Lana, maybe even a little bit of Pat Benatar, maybe even a little Flyleaf. And then you had Lemon Eyes, which sounded like Taylor Swift, but punk. And I was very confused. (laughs) I like music that kind of confuses you. Yeah. It was interesting. Oh, the song Parade, the chords in the beginning reminded me of the chords of Mad World. Like I said, there was a lot going on. And the I liked it. I wanted to like it more than I did, though. And I think the reason I couldn't completely get on board is because it doesn't completely sound, and this is just me, it doesn't completely sound authentically her to me. It kind of sounds, and the Billy album sounded a little bit like this too, like they were just trying to take as many old influences as they could and like smash it into a cohesive album. And it was good, but it didn't sound like them to me. Good observation because Happier Than Ever kind of struck me the same way. Yeah. And you know what? I don't care. Whatever. You know, yeah, you, get, you can get all the hate you want. I think the people who hear that album as a perfect album are pandering to the crowd. The album wasn't bad in the general sense of the word. It actually was not. Sure. No, it wasn't a bad record. I wouldn't give this no. record out of 10. I would not give it anything fewer than six stars or less. Right. Well, like I liked it. It had a good sound. It just didn't sound authentic to me. So I thought there was a lack of authenticity in some of the areas that you were talking about, but I also felt like there was a lack of coherence as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind. See, so here's the thing. I don't uh, I believe you can have an album that is both coherent but also diversified from track to track. Yes. I think that that is very possible and it's been done billions of times. Oh yeah. However, just because other albums have done it multiple times over doesn't mean that future ones will do that as well. And I actually think that where do we go when we fall asleep? I feel like that LP was more coherent and more consistent than happier than ever, even though happier than ever, I would say was more mature. Hmm. I think on average, the tracks were pretty interesting. Sometimes they do lose me, but it actually had some really cool tracks on it, you know? Yeah, I think so, too. Sometimes I almost feel like the ideas weren't able to evolve or mature better had they maybe fleshed out the thoughts more. I don't know if they've been working on this for years or a month or a week, but there was a slight amount of rushness, it felt like. It felt like some of the songs, I don't mind short tracks, but they really didn't feel like they developed. It felt like... I'm getting a bouquet of of buds, you know, like I'm giving that to my mother rather than like fully blossomed flowers. That's what it yeah. felt like. And so she's getting the plant. She's getting the stem. She's getting the leaf, but she's not really getting a fully developed blossom. So. Right. And I felt that way a little bit with the Sorry album by Make Myers. Like, wow, this is a really cool song. But then it like, after the chorus, it just like went kind of back to where it was at the original verse. Nothing wrong with that. It's just, I wish some of them had been as interesting as I thought they were going to be. So so quality control, you didn't really feel like it was really 
completely up there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is. And like I said, the problem is I even only did a speed listen of some of these, but yeah. Yeah. There were some that I really liked on the Billie Eilish album. I really liked Lost Cause. That was my favorite. It was also the one that reminded me the most of Timbra. So that's okay. why, because I love Kimbra. <laughs> I really liked Goldwing too, because of the harmonies. And I thought the chords were that song was quintessential Billie Eilish, Billy and Phineas. I liked that one too. And I think that's why, because it actually reminded me of them. Whereas all the other songs, I was like, yeah, it's Billy, but it doesn't sound like Billy. I felt like Therefore I Am was pretty Billy-esque. I may have skipped that one because I was running out of time and I was like, this is a lot of songs. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I mean, even if in the future, if you want, you can just do like a 30 second, maybe a one minute each. Like you said, a speed listen. So there was Therefore I Am as well. Oh, so Your Power is definitely one of my favorite tracks. And okay, yeah, I, I love that track because I like Neil Diamond. I like Fleetwood Mac. I like... Mm haunting songs that are typically led by just a vocal and a piano or an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. Sorry, acoustic piano, because electric piano, I think is cool. It's still mellow, but something about both acoustic piano and guitar, they have a character to them. And so Your Power is probably my favorite track on it, but Overheated was pretty cool too. Nice. I still felt like Overheated... The thing with Happier Than Ever, I think what's weird is that, hmm, Where Do We Go was good, but I think sometimes my issue with Eilish's stuff, because Phineas is a really good producer, you know, I, I can't discredit him. So if he's listening, I mean, his production's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like his style, you know, I mean, and to be fair, you know, Billy wouldn't be anywhere without him and he wouldn't be anywhere without her. They're a good team. They're a fantastic team. They are. They yeah. are a power team. For sure. But. I think sometimes. Their production or lack thereof can be a bit underwhelming and it's OK because I like minimalism. I think minimalism is, is chill, but I think sometimes I do it well and then sometimes it's almost too minimal or toward the very end of the album. I know it was a creative decision to, I think the track was happier than ever. You know, the title track, there was the decision to distort it. That was really interesting. And I think it was cool. I think some people won't like it, but I actually liked the idea of it. But sometimes like in reality, I'm like, okay, well I get it. You know, you will break a rule artistically to convey a point, a feeling, you know, this is your statement. But I think sometimes they, these artistic decisions are more nuisances than they are creatively satisfying mm. or creatively tantalizing or, or it, it, it's not really creatively stimulating. It might stimulate you, but it might like in an annoying way, like, okay, this is not, this is not pleasant. Mm. So I could, I could hear that going either way. I, I personally was neutral about it because I was like, okay, cool. I understood why they made it distorted. You know, they did that obviously on purpose, but at the same token, I'm like, okay, well I could hear where someone would totally get annoyed with it. And so that that's pretty neutral again. So that's, that's up to 
people if they want to like it or dislike it. But when it comes to underproduction, which is still technically a freedom and a liberty, that sometimes is up for debate. And to be fair, when you grade an album or review it, each critic is going to have their own way of reviewing an album. And that's what makes reviewing albums so arbitrary. It's so subjective. Yeah. And sometimes I'm like, okay, like as a critic, I don't take myself too seriously. Like I'll be serious about it. But like at the end of the day, the disclaimer is, but hey, you do you. If you like it, cool. Yeah. So in, in some way, I kind of feel like what I'm doing is totally opposite of what I want to do. Because I'm like, well, it's still subjective. So why am I trying to put my objective onto it? Right. But it does, the album does suffer from a few things. And I feel like if these things weren't there, the album would have been much better. But yes, I do think it suffers from underproduction. Mm. The distortion was okay. That was fine. And then underdeveloped and lack of cohesiveness. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like in the end, if that's what Billy and Phineas like, I feel like in the end, they need to do what they like. And that's awesome. But I do feel a lot of the times like, artists are trying to like go for a specific sound because of whatever reason, and it doesn't end up sounding authentic. And I feel like if artists are completely being themselves, then that's going to come through on the album, no matter what the critics say, whatever. And I think that's going to shine through, but yeah, this didn't sound super authentic to me. It was, it was good. It just didn't sound super like them, you know? Honestly, I think, yeah, I think I would no less than a six, but I probably would put it in the the six and seven camp. I know there are tons of people out there who are putting it in like eight or nine categories. Sure. Yeah. Oh, and if they really like it, then awesome. I'm sorry. I'm not one of those people. I, I really think that mm, this one's a tricky one for me. I feel like this album, I feel like at best it's, I'm going to go down as like, the most ridiculous critic of all time. But I think I'm being actually pretty fair. I think I'd put it anywhere between... I would not put an 8 on this for those listening. I would not put this in the 8 category. I might put it on uh, the 7 somewhere or the 6 somewhere. So that's kind of where I am. Okay. So maybe you could even just slap on a 7. Maybe a 6.5, 6.8, 7, something like that. Hmm. Yeah. For me, I don't even know how I would go about grading albums because that's just that's just not even how I process it, I guess. So I don't know what number I would slap on it. Seven is good. Eight is like really good. Nine is outstanding and 10 is perfect. And I don't think there is a 10 out there. That's just my opinion. No, I mean, if I were to give a 10 to an album, it would be a Beatles or a Zeppelin album. And Probably even Beatles over Zeppelin, because Zeppelin doesn't have a single album where I like every single one of the songs, except for maybe Presence. That was like their most underrated album. That one was underrated. Yeah. Good call on oh, that everyone one. hated that album. I, I don't really hate the album, but it doesn't really work for me. But I would love to like go over why that album is your favorite. That would be great. Yeah. I need to listen to it again just to like refresh, but that is. That is my favorite Zeppelin album. Good choice. Yeah, that's a good album. And then you have their last one, In Through the Outdoor, which actually is their worst album. It's pretty bad. Yeah, but what year was it released? 
Uh, I don't remember. Probably 79, like right before John Bonham died. Yeah. Okay. There's a reason. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Typically. No, that is the reason. Like, yeah. yeah like, I was going to say, because uh, Presidents is from 1976, right? I don't remember. I'm pretty positive it's 76. But yeah, that one is a pretty, you know, they're still kind of at their prime. But I feel like toward the very end, you know, 79, just before Bonham kicks a bucket, I feel like. I don't blame them, you know, that it wasn't that good oh, of an no. album. There were a lot of reasons it was their worst album. Jimmy Page had basically checked out by that point. Like he was. It was Aleister Crowley's fault. Yeah, it was Aleister Crowley's <laughs> Everything fault. It was is also, Aleister Crowley's yes, fault. <laughs> it was also the drug's fault. Like there was a lot going on. The Golden Dawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're going to shut down our podcast. Right. So then um, the bassist, the bassist really took over a lot of the... um, John Paul Jones, right? uh, Yeah, that's right. John Paul Jones. He took over a lot of the production. And obviously he was a great musician too, but it was just completely different. It was so completely different than anything they'd ever done before. He was getting into a lot of the 80s synth stuff before the 80s. Which... It would have worked, but they're not Rush. Right. And I know people who are even Rush fans did not like the synth era, too. So, Right. It's very specific. It has to be done well. And it's Zeppelin. They're not a synth band. Like, you know, it's it's very weird. And it just didn't work. That was a terrible album. I think I liked one song on it. And that's that's pretty sad for a Zeppelin album, but Presence <laughs> Presence was great, and everyone hated Presence. But yeah, it was that was a good album. I liked it. They hated its presence. Yeah, they did. They were like, "Get out of here!" <laughs> no, I totally want to get so that one. I want to get in more. Okay, and another thing that I want to get into how how do you artistically? Because I'm not saying he's not good. He's actually really good. But do you feel like John Paul Jones is overrated? Um. I don't know that he's overrated because, and this is just me, I don't hear a whole lot about him as a bassist. When I hear about bassists, I consistently hear about Paul McCartney. Yes. And obviously I would put Getty Lee in there, but I don't even hear a lot about Rush in general. But when I talk to people, they're like, oh yeah, Getty Lee was a great bass player. That's because that's an established fact. Like, <laughs> right. Getty that's Lee is true. Is- is pretty good. So like I can't really yeah, like he's there's nothing really bad to say about him. But yeah, I don't hear a lot about John Paul Jones and with Led Zeppelin, I was always just so like enamored with the vocals and also with Jimmy Page that I don't think I listened a whole lot to the bass lines. So I don't know that he's overrated. I don't know that he's underrated. Um, I'd have to give his bass lines a listen for sure. What do you think about him? You're a bass player. Hmm. I think that John Paul Jones is definitely overrated. Now, to be fair, they are one of the biggest bands of all time. So it's it's yes. it's kind of expected. And to be fair, Paul McCartney, he's overrated, but sometimes he's pretty underrated. Like there are times where like I barely ever see him listed in greatest bases of all time. Sometimes he will. Yeah. But I think it's pretty obvious that Paul McCartney's songwriting has overshadowed anything that he's ever done, and mostly with the Beatles. So, like, it's always the Lennon-McCartney, Lennon-McCartney type uh, persona more than Paul the bassist or Paul the pianist. Like, yeah, 
I don't typically hear him synonymized with bass as much as his songwriting. That's so interesting. I always hear about his bass lines. I always hear about his melodies too, his songwriting and his melodies. I think he's kind of overrated, but I also think that he is properly rated because... I think he's properly rated. Yeah, because I I think he's properly rated because I could think he's over and underrated at the same time. People don't overstate him too much. I mean, yes, they do. You know, Beatles heads will. But I personally consider him one of my top 15. I mean, he should be in my top 10, but he really is in my top 15 or 20. Mm -hmm. So he's one of my favorite bassists. Yes. But I really like Paul because he's just a full package. He's a bassist. He's a pianist. He's a guitarist. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a songwriter. Yeah, that's my thing with him is he's like an all-around good musician. Exactly. He's just, yeah, fantastic. So I guess I I could kind of hate on how overrated he is, but I also can't hate on him because he, he I mean, he is one of my favorite figures in music. So th- there's that. But I do believe John Paul Jones is a great bassist. He's obviously better than I am, and that's fine. But I guess what is proper when it comes to rating John Paul Jones is that he is in that lineage of bassists and power rock bands, like these hard rock bands, metal bands. Like I I do think he's a pioneer. Mm. And so for, for that reason, I would put John Paul Jones in with some of the greats, but then I do think that he gets overstated. Like, Oh, you don't know music unless you get into John Paul Jones. I'd say, no, you don't know bass playing unless you got into people like Victor Wooten, you know, mm. or James Jamerson, you know, bassist jazz guys, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's not just in jazz too. I mean, even in bass, sorry, even in bass playing, even in rock, you know, there are, mm. I won't lie. I think Roger Waters is overrated. I said that one time in another podcast. I think if anything, that's Pink Floyd, right? Yeah. I mean, he's a good songwriter. I think it's cool that he was in Pink Floyd, but I don't think he's one of the greatest bassists of all time. Mm. His bass is super sick. It's his black Fender Precision. I don't know what year, uh, 60 or so. I don't know what it is, but it's a precision with a maple neck. It's a really nice bass. But, you know, I mean, who doesn't play Fender? Not, not, not everyone, but many people do. I mean, Getty Lee's is a Fender Jazz. And so that's one of the greatest basses of all time. Nice. Either a Fender Jazz or a Fender Precision. I have a Jaguar because I like offset, awkward, and weird. But I also like the familiarity of Fender. So like I have a Fender bass and they're great. Nice. John Paul Jones was a Fender jazz player. Nice. Yeah. And so those are like the more, that would be kind of cool to get into another episode more technical in that area. Maybe bassists will actually like to listen to that one. Yeah. But as far as John Paul Jones's significance, I consider him a pioneer, but not necessarily someone who is deserving of the top 20. Hmm. In my opinion, if I were to pick a favorite member in Led Zeppelin, take a guess. Oh, who do you no. think I choose? No, no. Who do you think I choose? Jimmy Page. Nope. Nope. Wow. Nope. It's, it's the other guy. The other. There's three other guys. I know, but you know. Robert Plant. No, it was Bonham. Oh, you picked John Bonham. <laughs> John Bonham. Oh, he's a fantastic. He was. <laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah. Never mind. All right. He's um, (laughs) never got that. But anyway, um, 
he <laughs> he was a fantastic drummer. Yeah, Just he's amazing. To me, he is. I know Robert is classic and iconic for his stage presence oh, yeah. and his vocals. That's yeah. obvious for you. I know that. Oh, yeah. 100%. At the same token, if I were to take one guy out of that band who was like the guy, in my opinion, it's John Bonham. I could see that. I could see that because Jimmy Page, while he was super, I mean, he's one of. He was good, but I mean, you could take. Jimi Hendrix, you could take so many guitarists, no offense, that are comparable. And actually many people, I'm not saying everyone does. I feel like Led Zeppelin heads, they get it. But a lot of people will say, oh, he wasn't that good. Now, I do think he was good. Yeah. Again, they're way better than we are. And that's fine. But if I were to take one person, when you compare them to other people, like for instance, John Bonham, among other drummers, stands out more than Jimmy Page, among other guitarists at the time. I think Bonham's signature style, like the way he drummed, I think revolutionized the drum world more than the other guys in their own world. And that's just my opinion. But even if you take out Robert Plant, I think that John Bonham revolutionized drumming more than Jimmy Page revolutionized guitar and John Paul Jones revolutionized bass playing. But they're a good band. I'm not going to hate on them as a band. Again, there's a reason why they're up there. So, yeah, what I was thinking about, Jimmy Page, is that going along with what you said about um, John Bonham actually being your favorite. Now, a lot of people will say he's a messy guitarist. He totally is. He's still, like, one of my favorite guitarists. But the thing with him is that, like, yeah, he did a lot of interesting things. But there were other people, I think, doing more interesting things at the time. Like you said, Jimi Hendrix. What do you think about Eric Clapton, actually? Because he just came to my mind. Eric Clapton, I think, is properly rated. I think sometimes he can be a bit overrated, but I think he's properly rated. Cream's a great band. Yes. Ginger Baker's a great drummer. Yes. Yeah, I knew you were going to think about Ginger Baker. Yes. Ginger <laughs> Baker is awesome. I actually really like the drummer, too, from the Hendrix experience. Mitch Mitchell. You like Mitch Mitchell a lot. Yes. People like him and Ginger Baker were more jazz-inspired drummers. Is that correct? Yes, because that's why they were so good. Yes. And Danny Serafin from Chicago, also one of my favorites. I've listened to their first album based on your... Recommendation? Yeah, on your recommendation. I was not... Sorry, I don't remember his drumming, but I, I imagine I liked it. Okay, well, one that you might know is... Does anybody really know what time it is? I vaguely remember that. It was years ago I listened to it, but I remember it was like an excellent album. Oh my gosh, that album is amazing. Chicago, nice. Chicago Transit Authority is a great record. It's one of my favorites of all time. See, I didn't know we were going to talk about Chicago. We went from Billy to Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) That that train of progression was very strange, (laughs) but I love it. Oh my gosh. No, well, you did bring up Eric Clapton. We talked. So I, I guess Led Zeppelin was going to be a gateway into this stuff. That's true. But yeah, no, I, I love Chicago. Satara is also one of my favorite bassists in my top 20, not like my top. He would have been in my top 10. So I guess top 15. I don't think Satara is the greatest bassist of all time. But again, I like the Fender Precision. It's got that. I guess I'm what I'm really nerding about is the sound of the bass more than the player. But Satara's bass playing is really cool. Mm. I think, of course, 
he ruined a band in the 80s. But so was he the one who brought Chicago into like 80s Chicago? Yes. He was the one after Kath unfortunately killed himself. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. He played Russian roulette with the gun and then shot himself. <sighs> it was supposedly purely accidental. It was not on purpose, but it's still unfortunate. Oh. And I think he died at 30. That's so unfortunate. Yes. And so I think Kath is wildly underrated because Jimi Hendrix gives him a mention, supposedly. But Kath is good. I mean, you listen to Chicago Transit Authority, you listen to Chicago 2, Chicago 3, and you know, they're just like numbered after the first album. But Kath was a monster player. His voice was smoky and just like deep. And they were just monster musicians. But yeah, Mitch, Danny, and Ginger, as well as John... They come from a lineage of drummers and also uh, the drummer from Gentle Giant. I can't remember them. I'm sure I've heard them, but yeah, I just don't remember them. There were a lot of good bands back then. A lot of good musicians in general, solid drummers, like you said, coming out of the jazz tradition. No, you mentioned it. I mean, I knew it, but you mentioned it on here. It is because of their jazz influence that they were so good. Yeah, what I liked... Like, just one thing that sticks out in my head about Mitch Mitchell is his use of a, what's that brush stick? What kind of thing? Like, it's a drumstick, but with a brush? Um, I'm actually uneducated in this area as well, but I think they're just called brushes. That makes sense. I feel like I remember him using that in a song, and he might not have even done it, but I just remember, like, the style just reminded me so much of jazz stuff. And I was like, this is so good. It's just so interesting. It's not just straight 4-4 rock or whatever, just typical rock drumming. It's It was interesting drumming. Very, very cool stuff. And the Hendrix experience was good all around. <laughs> yeah, and I, I have to be honest, though. I do think if I were to take one member in that band that was the least significant, it would be the bassist. No offense. I don't remember his name. And I think that speaks volumes. And you know what what sucks is is I'm totally desecrating his name. He is a really good player. Again, I'm sure even better than me, but like I I don't remember his name. I'm looking it up right now just so that we can be nice. (laughs) Give him some honor. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, because like he was obviously like Noel Redding. Got it. Yeah. Like obviously he was like, a good bass player, but yeah, he's just um, definitely, I think the most insignificant member in the band that that is kind of sad when you put it like that, but it's yeah, fair. like you had Mitch <laughs> Mitchell and Jimi Hendrix. I, in that case, I'd probably take John Paul Jones. <laughs> no offense. <Yeah. laughs> you know what sucks oh. is John Paul Jones is a very respected bassist, so I don't even want to trash on him. He's really respected. I mean, sure. Dave Grohl is obsessed with them as well as um. Josh Holm from Queens of the Stone Age, like they did that project, Them Crooked Vultures. Did you ever listen to that? Hmm. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, no, we'll check it out. Dave on drums, Josh on guitar, and John on bass. Yes. Yes, the super group. That's right. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of those, actually. I, I think, which one's a super? Well, Foo Fighters is a super group, believe it or not. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So Dave from Nirvana. Yes. Nate Mendel and William Goldsmith from Sunny Day Real Estate. 
Oh, I don't know them. It's okay. Before Dave basically <laughs> ruined that with William and William left the band. So then Taylor Hawkins from Alanis Morissette, the live set. Oh, nice. Yeah. So he wasn't really part of a big band like Foo Fighters yet. Okay. You know? And and Foo Fighters were, were smaller than Alanis at the time. So Taylor's jump from Alanis to Foo Fighters was kind of a surprise to Dave. But in Taylor's mind, he's like, well, I want to rock. Like, I want to be in a rock band. And so actually, you could credit Foo Fighters' success to Taylor. So good on Taylor, That's man. Amazing. Good. Honor to you, man. And then Pat Smear was from The Germs as well as Nirvana's touring guitarist. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so, and then Franz Stahl was from Scream and also Dave Grohl drum with Scream a while back. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, Foo Fighters have had quite a few members, I have to be honest, because now they even have a keyboardist and I still don't know his name. I will get your name, man. Much respect to you. But yeah, they were a super group. So. Wow. That's fascinating. Were they the ones who sang Everlong? I love that song. I think it's the only one I know by the Foo Fighters. It's okay. It's a good, I think out of all of the the bigger singles, like in the planet, I think Everlong's probably one of the better ones. Okay. Now, who's the other band? Just because I get them and the Foo Fighters mixed up, not even for good reason, just for whatever reason. Okay. You know the song, I think it's called Iris. And oh. I don't want the world to see me. It's, uh, I hate the name. I think it's one of the worst names of all time. Goo Goo Dolls? The Goo Goo Dolls. Blech. Yes. That's a That's terrible name. Yes, <laughs> it is. That's why I get a mix with the Foo Fighters. It's because Goo rhymes with Foo. Oh, Foo Fighters is a terrible band name too. But you know what's cool about Foo Fighters is even though it sounds absolutely lame, it's actually a World War II term for an unidentified flying object. So... There you go. Oh, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And actually, if you look at earlier Foo's tracks um, records, there is an album cover that they use for like a UFO on it. Okay. And so that's a little Foo Fighter Easter egg. That's cool. Oh, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. These these guys, they're always so brainy, like a little more brainy than I would have ever given them credit for. But they do things like that. And I'm like, dang, (laughs) that's good. (laughs) That's awesome. But yeah, no, those drummers and and the people from the late 60s, the mid late 60s, and then, you know, the boom that would cause the 70s explosion. The Actually, because of jazz, that fueled the progressive movement, the progressive rock movement i think if anything mm, i could see that because like with prog rock it kind of has two sides and one is the more jazz side and one is the more um just rock side it's really interesting but it's kind of split like that yeah no the, the prog rock movement was like brought to you by jazz like you that know. makes sense brought to you by yeah that that totally makes sense. Brought to you by jazz and conformity of the 50s. And yeah, we right. want to break away from our parents' molds. We're tired yes. of being associated with our parents. And so that's why the 60s were so controversial. And we went from extremely conservative to extremely blue. It's just funny how, like, th- that's that's what the music scene was. Like, that was what was happening. Like, yeah. we went from, like, the preppy schoolboy, like, early Beatles look. And then all of a sudden, everyone's growing out their hair. Doing marijuana. And just like, 
F you, mom and dad. Like, I'm going to do what I do. And it's just crazy. And then Woodstock, right? Like, yes, the free love movement. It's ridiculous how revolutionary all that was at that time. It's so true. And how quickly it all changed. That was a very swift societal change. We went from this to like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like all the way to the. (laughs) It's crazy. And it makes me think that a lot of that had to have been brewing beneath the surface for a lot longer. Like you had people in the 50s who were sleeping around and stuff like that, but it was just a lot more hush hush. And then it started being pushed more towards the surface. And so it seemed like a really swift change. And it was. But at the same time, it had already, there were hints of it brewing beneath the surface. Well, you know, little Richard, he was kind of part of that. He was big. And then eventually he was like, he renounced everything he did from his youth. Wow. But little Richard was part of the, not the 60s, 70s movement, but he was part of the 50s movement of rebellion. Yes. With rock and roll in church, how it was the devil's music. And so... Yeah, things went really like super conservative, hush hush. We can't talk about that here. Yeah. Into like super progressive and like, oh yeah, let's let it all out. Let's talk about everything. We need to be as provocative as possible. And so yeah, that influenced everything, especially the music space. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Uh, something I like about 50s music and earlier is that if they were talking about sex, they were very poetic about it. They usually weren't super out there. (laughs) They weren't just straight up rude. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Then you get to Led Zeppelin and I'm like, oh, are we really talking about this like this? Like, this is just raunchy. Yeah. That was something I more prefer about the 50s. But then, you know, I like just the raw emotion and power of some of the music from like Led Zeppelin or stuff like that. And you would not have seen that in the 50s. Everything was a lot more like contained and polished and could be put on like an Norman Rockwell poster and stuff like that. They did that on Presence, the album cover. They made it look like a Norman Rockwell. Like Yes. I, I didn't even think about that. A lot of Bob Dylan albums looked, maybe not a lot, but at least one Bob Dylan album kind of looked like that too. That's so interesting. You know, next episode, we'll get into presence. I think that would be great. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I want to talk more about Led Zeppelin. In fact, let's just go full on 60s, 70s. I agree. I think that'll be super awesome. There's always so much to talk about in there because that was just, I mean, that was an explosion. That was an absolute musical explosion, what was happening there with the British invasion and everything in the culture during that time. I mean, we're only scratching the surface in this episode, you know? <laughs> You're right, we are. And yeah. we, we should have given Keith Moon a mention in those drummers. I, I wanted to kind of talk about him, but maybe we can do that in the future because that would be great. Yeah. Remind me, Keith Moon was the who? Yes. Woo, <laughs> I was waiting right. for you to say, and Keith Moon was from who? <laughs> yeah, that would have been funny. Who is he? And I would have, and I still would have said yes. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> I would have said yes. Well, not yes, right? I forgot. Right. Yes. Yes, yes. That's a different band. Speaking of jazz, prog, rock, yes was wild. What's his name? Is it Billy Squire? Is that something oh, that Squire sounds- or Chris Squire? Is it Chris Squire? Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up because I know it's something Squire from Yes. 
Yeah, that sounds so familiar. I don't know enough about them. I've listened to them, but Chris Squire was on the harmonica. Chris Squire. I got it. Okay, so my second guest, he was the bassist. I remember that. Okay. Yeah, Chris Squire. Chris Squire. Yeah, I have listened to yes. I'm I'm doing it off, but that's so cool. Yeah, they're a very good band. I didn't get much into that side of prog rock because I was always on the more rush side of prog rock. And I liked um, oh, there was some other the the band that sings Aqualung. Da na 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 na. Don't do 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 you want me to say it or do you want to guess it? I oh I can't even remember. Go ahead and guess. Je- Jethro Tull. Yes. Jethro Tull. That's right. Yep. Yeah. I was on that side of prog rock a little more than Yes or King Crimson, but I liked them. Oh, King Crimson. I'm so glad you mentioned Crimson, them. Crimson, yes. No, no, no. It's fine. No, I, I wasn't even correcting you. I was like, yes. I'm so glad you. Yes. But all these. Uh, yes. <laughs> I feel a bit rushed right now. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jethro Tull even got into some jazz stuff, though, too. They had some jazz flute going on sometimes. Very interesting. Very, like, just all over the place. And I guess that's what prog rock was, because it was influenced by jazz. It was. Jazz was like the gateway drug, jazz and blues, to this whole explosion. (laughs) Yes, it was. And speaking of all over the place, just like our episodes, which is fine, because we're musicians, and musicians like to trail off. Yes, especially me. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm way worse than you, but I think we work. You know, it just yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and with that, uh, we will definitely get into uh, those bands next episode. That would be great. Awesome! That'll be so cool. We will be. Well, hopefully, we won't be the Grateful Dead. We'll be the Grateful Alive. But yes, we'll, <laughs> we'll get into we'll get into those bands. That'll be fun. Yeah, sounds good. But yeah, again, as usual, thanks for being on here. It's always great to have you. Yeah, thanks. And hear your two cents and whatnot. As always, thank you for having me on. It's always a really, it's always an adventure <laughs> with our trailing. It's always fun. <laughs> no, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And your thoughts are, um, me too. they're greatly appreciated. But yeah, that, that concludes today's episode and we'll be with you next week. And Christina, I will catch you later. I guess we'll just be catching bases. That'll just be... Yes, catching bases. Catching bases. We'll catch base later. Yeah, sounds good. All right, peace. Peace.